0: Welcome to Crossroads and Happy New Year to all of you. I wanna give a big shout out to those of you who are worshiping with us right now on Facebook Live or maybe you're at Crossroads West. We're really glad that you've decided to join us today. And uh, I don't know if you had a good year in 2017, but it is a new beginning, a fresh start, and we are excited about the year that is before us here at Crossroads. Now, you should know that December uh, last month was a huge month in the life of our church. Uh, I just want to celebrate a couple things real quickly. First of all, On Christmas Eve, between eight services at two campuses, uh, you brought with you a total of 5,397 people. I mean, that is just awesome. Uh, that is a huge win for us because that means nearly 5,400 people had the opportunity to hear that that there is a God that loves them and that is for them and can show them a better way to live before their funeral. Now, the other thing that I want to celebrate real quickly is uh, our heart for the house project. If you were with us at all in December, you know that this was a project we put before you to clarify where your year-end giving would uh, uh, go to here at Crossroads. There are a lot of good organizations and nonprofits that. That you probably had the opportunity to give towards in the month of December. And so this was just our way of saying, hey, if you give above and beyond what you normally do, it's going to go towards these two things, renovating uh, part of our, our children's wing here on our Newburgh campus and setting aside money for our third campus somewhere in the tri-state region. Now, truthfully, this was a big risk. This was a step of kind of faith for us. We didn't know what was going to happen, if you know we would even receive anything for this. And I got to tell you, though, that our staff was just blown away uh, when we saw what had come in and the number that, that really you gave because you were generous. You not only stepped out in faith with us, uh, but because of your generosity, Heart for the House last month brought in a total of $470,833. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? <clears throat> And so on behalf of the future generations of people and lives and children that will be changed forever because of your generosity, thank you. We are grateful for you, and we really believe that 2018 has the potential to be our best year uh, as a church. Now, to start this new year off, we are in a brand new series called Better. Um, now just by a show of hands, how many of you made a New Year's resolution for 2018? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, like 12 of us, it was like six last service. Um, Guess that's better. I mean, might as well just keep the standard low because at least you can hit that, right? Now, how many of you have already broken your New Year's resolution? Let's be honest here. Okay, six of us, good. Uh, I actually not only made a New Year's resolution this year, but I've so far kept it about a year in or about a week in to this year. My one resolution was that I wouldn't lie to myself about making some lifestyle changes. Yeah, so far, so good for me, right? Now, I don't know what your resolution is, what you even think about it, but there is something about a fresh start or a new beginning that we love. A recent study that I read revealed that at the end of the year, there's only about a 12% chance that you will successfully have kept your New Year's resolution. Now, what's even more astounding than that is about 33% of people give up their resolution just 30 days in. Can you believe that? Now, chances are that that's probably not news to you. I mean, people joke about that a lot. But the question is, then, then if we know like failure is going to happen, why do we do this every single year? Why do we have this desire to, to make improvements and to begin something new, knowing that it's probably only a matter of time until we give it up or we fail or we quit or we're just, we're just not as determined as we were at the end of the previous year? Now I don't know about you, but but there's just something about wherever you are in your faith, there's just something about this idea of an improvement or, or something better taking place in an area of our life that is really important, that, that is really attractive. It's it's really compelling. We know that that hey, if there is this chance for, for something better before us, and, and yeah, that might require making some changes, then, then I'm gonna give it my best shot, right? I mean, I've never met anybody on the contrary ever his, for, for, for up some of the most important parts of their life and as a result her some of the more important people around them I this year or i can't wait to get my girlfriend pregnant or you know uh, lose my job get fired from work right And yet that describes a lot of our stories, that kind of pain and brokenness, maybe define 2017, and it will maybe define some of our years uh, before us. And and so why is it, why is it that, that we end up sometimes in this place where we never really intended to be to begin with? I mean, it's not like we woke up aiming to head that direction, and yet a lot of us, we ended up there anyways, didn't we? Well, you might not like the answer. You might disagree. You might push back. And you, might, you might even be offended by it, but, but why does that happen? Well, it goes like this. All right, your plan for your life is perfectly designed to give you the results you keep getting. Now, you might think, well, well what plan are you talking about? I don't have, really have a plan. I don't have a strategy for my life. Well, case in point, there you go. All right, your approach to, to your life reveals why you keep getting the results that, that you keep getting and, and and that may describe the year that's before you. I mean, the definition of insanity is doing the same things over and over again, yet just expecting different results. And, and so if we really want to strive towards what's better, if we want something, you know, an improvement of our life, it's going to require that, that we do some things differently. And so what we're going to do in this series is we are going to look at a speech given by a a leader in the Bible named Moses. Okay, and so uh, we're going to be there for the the next few weeks as we look at this speech because this speech was kind of like a New Year's resolution challenge. It was a a rally cry for the Israelite community. If you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn to the uh, Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. If you don't own a Bible, there should be a black Bible uh, be, uh, right in front of you, either below your chair and and uh, if you don't own one, feel free to take that home with you. That's our gift to you. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 30 for this series. Okay? And, and this, again, is where Moses gives this speech to the Israelite community. Now as you're turning there, understand that, that this book in nature is kind of reflective, it's contemplative, it's it's like a history book that was intended to be for the Jewish people so that future generations wouldn't forget all that God had done for them, how how faithful he had been to their ancestors, their forefathers at a prior chapter in, in their life. Okay, so, so Moses is, is really old when he gives this speech. And, and the Israelite community were, were living in the desert. It was, it was at the end of this 40-year stretch of, of living in the wilderness. And they're just about to enter into this area called the Promised Land. Now, the Promised Land was just on the other side of this mountain, and it was what God had told them he, he was gonna lead them to. It was their dream. It, it was what they thought about constantly. And yet, after 40 years, they, they weren't there yet, okay? Okay. Now, Moses is kind of reflecting back on his life, realizing all the decisions that he made were good and some of the bad decisions that he made. Now, let me, just, let me just time out there real quickly, okay? Sometimes when we read about different characters in the Bible, we read different stories in Scripture. Not only are they a little bit unbelievable, we think, how is that even scientifically possible? But, but just take, for example, some characters, a guy like Moses, now, we, we automatically uh, tend to conclude, hey, I, I can't really identify with this guy, okay? I mean, he was tapped into something different. He had supernatural powers. He he had this incredible faith that, that honestly, I, I struggle with. There's no way that my life is, is anything like his, and, and so there's just a big disconnect between the two of us. I mean, after all, Moses was this guy who, who stood before this body of water, and in faith, the waters split so that the Israelite community could actually walk through it and you might be thinking to yourself, I, I can't even avoid McDonald's right <laughs> let alone split some waters just by saying let's go let's move forward and yet what we need to understand is that Moses he was just like us okay what I mean by that well he was a pretty messy broken person he struggled with anger that, that was probably his biggest weakness he struggled with, with confidence. He, he doubted and, and questioned God many times. In fact, earlier in his life, he actually killed a guy, tried to cover it up, and then ran away when he found out that people actually saw him do it. He had been found out. And, and so Moses, he, he, he was pretty broken. And, and so understand this. Whenever we read about characters like him in the Bible or significant stories, that there's rarely ever a moral lesson for us to take away. That's usually not the point. No, the point is, is always God, all right, so the main character of this story, and in every story in Scripture, is the Lord. It, it's about his power and what he can do through us, really in spite of us. And so it's kind of like a New Year's Day for the Israelite community, okay? They're about to embark on the promised land, and so here's what Moses stands up and says. Check out uh, chapter 30, verse 11. Here's what we read. He says, Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach, it is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. No, it's not beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. No, the word, in other words, this, this better way, what, what you're looking for in that area of your life to be what it ultimately can be, to, to become who you can become, to live up to your potential, the source of it it's very near you it's in your mouth and it's in your heart so so that you may obey it And so right here, Moses is talking to this next generation of Israelites. Sometimes we might refer to them as the Jews, the Jewish people, God's people, all the same people, okay? He's talking to this next generation. They're about to experience a fresh start and embark on a new journey into the promised land. Now, several years before this moment, Moses had led their families, their moms and dads and grandparents out of slavery in Egypt. But honestly, life didn't improve much. Why? Because from Egypt, from slavery, they wandered around this wilderness and desert for for 40 years. Life didn't improve much once they were technically free. And so for the next 40 years, they just camped and and wondered. And many times that they questioned God, the newness and, and the excitement of no longer being in oppression quickly turned into complaining and doubting and bickering and arguing. But you know what? No matter what, no matter what, God never left them. I mean, even when they could point to something in their circumstances that, like, God, if you really were in control, if you really were going to keep your promises, you wouldn't have let that happen, or you wouldn't have let us there. If you really knew that was coming, well, why didn't you protect us? Why didn't you let us know? But, but through it all, we know God, God was much closer to them than they thought. And so in this speech, Moses r- reminded this generation of where to find guidance as they moved forward with life, as they built their lives as they built this new nation in the promised land the Lord made his truth very accessible to them and clear because his truth revealed to us in his word it reveals just just a better way to live God the creator he, he knows how things are supposed to work he he's much smarter than us okay and so he doesn't hide his truth he doesn't make it mysterious or unknown no it it's rather clear And so here's the thing, Moses knew standing before them in this speech that that if they didn't do some things differently, if they didn't embrace a better plan for their life, he knew that these men and women before him would simply repeat some of the same mistakes that the previous generation had made. You see, it's one thing to to know what's true, but it's something completely different to to actually respond to truth and, and actually bring your life in alignment with what God says is right and best. And so I don't know what part of your life right now feels like a desert. You're struggling. You're wrestling with it. It's really broken right now. But what we can do is clarify if we're willing and if we want something better, we can clarify what better really looks like, even though it will, it will lead us to do some things differently. And so from this speech, Moses clarifies that first and foremost, better Better is simple, it's not easy, though. Better is, is simple, not easy. You see, again, God hasn't hidden his truth. He hasn't made it mysterious. He, he, he doesn't take pride in, in causing us to hunt for it. No, he, he's brought it out into the open. He's given us the gift of his word so that we have access to it. He hasn't told us to you know, first join some cult and listen to some weird guy with long hair who lives in a van down by the river who goes off and has special revelations just to hear from him. No, it's given to us in his word. It's simple, it's clear, but, but don't mistake simplicity for ease. It doesn't mean easy. Most of the time, It will be difficult. It will challenge you. Better means discipline. It means hard work. It means effort. It means boldness and courage. My experience has been that that one of the hardest things about aligning your life with what God says is true and, and better is changing certain patterns and behaviors that over time we've just gotten comfortable with. I've recently been uh, reading a book called Leadership Pain. And by reading, I mean it's been sitting on my desk in my office for the past three months, and I'm averaging about two pages a month, okay? <laughs> now, this book is really written to pastors, church leaders, and uh, uh, business leaders uh, alike. And, but the, the truth is, the principles found in this book, I think, are appla- applicable to all of us who are wanting something better. Now, this book is based upon the formula that, that Chan says goes like this. When it comes to what we want better in our life, growth equals change. And so, yeah, I, th- this needs to improve. I want to grow in this area. I want it to be better. It's going to mean ch- change. And, and change eventually will lead to loss. Why? Because you have to do some things differently. Loss is pain. It, it's hard. It, it's difficult. It, it, it's painful. Therefore, he says, growth equals pain. Gr- growth e- equals pain. You know what? I love the idea of growth. I love the idea of something better. Honestly, I want to be a better husband, a better father, a better pastor, a better leader, a better person just in general. But you know what? I, I tend to stunt my growth because sometimes it's just too painful getting to where, getting to where I, I can be. But the reality is you, you will never grow beyond your ability to tolerate pain. Right. Running after what's better in your life will never supersede you, your ability to endure pain the, the pain of change and, and the pain of, of doing some things differently. I know many of us right now, we, we want more fulfillment for this year. We, we want to be satisfied. We want to be content. We, we want to get the promotion at work or we want to lose weight. We want to be more confident when we look in the, in the mirror. We, we want to be you know, more committed to, to our family. We want to be more present at home. Yet, Whatever it is that we're aiming for, it it will never happen if we don't learn to push through the pain of of change, of doing some things differently. Look at what Moses continues to say in verse 17 in in Deuteronomy 30. He says, but if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and, and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. So in other words, he's saying, hey, look, you've got two paths before you this year, You can go one direction or you can go the other. What's your strategy to to, to stay focused on what's better? What's your plan? Because if you go right or you go left, it will lead to pain. You will not live long in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day, I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death. Look, guys, the ball's in your court. It's your decision, it's your choice. Blessings and curses. Now choose life, Moses says. So that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, several years before this moment, Moses was taken up on a mountainside to meet with God. God gave him the 10 commandments there. Now, sometimes you might Here, the Ten Commandments referred to as the law. Okay, the law was really a gift to us and and specifically to the Jewish people because in the Ten Commandments we see what God expects the holiness of the Lord. Yet, in the Ten Commandments, the law, we, we reveal, it reveals a better way for us to live. It was a gift to them. Now, ironically, as Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments up on this mountain, down below, the Israelite community began making a golden calf, this false god, this idol, and they began bowing down and, and worshiping it. And so Moses specifically told the crowd before them to run away from what our false gods are calling for their attention because he knew that, that it ran in the family. Look, your mom and dad did it. Your grandparents made that idol. And you know what? That, that's true for us today. Chances are it's not a golden calf that you struggle with, but idolatry is simply our tendency to fill different voids, needs, wants that we have with things that, that promise something, but deliver what... It ultimately can't, it can't promise. It, it, it can't lead to what lasts. We all look to something maybe to, to tell us our, our worth and, and our value and our significance. That's what idolatry is. You see, the problem with idols, though, is that it, it leaves us ripped off. And so, so Moses told them, hey, you got to fight off your tendency to bow down to that God or to find your worth and identity in, in your job, in your career. It, it not only dishonors the Lord, but God knows that, that it leads us to this place where we're just wanting more. It leads to dissatisfaction, and it dishonors him. Now, let me just tell you something. Are you, you weren't made to find your worth, to find your worth and Title at the office. You weren't made to to find your your value in the neighborhood where you live, or you weren't made to find your your worth and value and what what you can bench press, your your sexual preference or or your relationship status, the degrees that maybe hang on your wall. You you weren't made to find your value in where your kids are attending college. Although we we drift towards false gods like that, nobody had to teach you to find your significance in those things. We naturally drift towards idolatry in our life. And yet Moses says that that there better life can only happen if we are willing to fight against those things and and, and strive towards what God says is right, true, and best for us. And and so better, better for us this year, it's not only simple, but better, it requires fight, not safety. Better requires fight, not, not safety. After Moses gave this speech, the promised land wasn't just given to the Jews on a silver platter. It wasn't just a walk in the park for them. No, getting from where they were to where God wanted them to be. It it meant going to war with certain nations and tribes that that were just on the other side of the mountain that stood between them and, and the promised land. Now at this time, understand that Moses was 120 years old. Can you believe that? 120 years old. I mean, he was that guy who probably lived at the pharmacy, drove 20 miles below the speed limit, with his blinker on, not knowing it, all right? He was that guy, but Moses was really reflective as he looked back on his life, and unfortunately, Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land because he continued to doubt God and and not believe in his promises. He lacked faith over and over again. And, and so right after this speech, Moses identifies his successor, the guy who would take on the leadership responsibility of the Israelite community and a man named Joshua. And so once he hands the baton off to Joshua, the very first thing that Moses says to Joshua in his charge and in his speech to him goes like this. Again, knowing that just on the other side of the, the mountain, once I give this baton of leadership over to you, buddy, it's going to be hard. You're going to face battles. It... it day one, it's difficult, he tells Joshua, hey look, be strong, be courageous, fight, know that God is with you even when you doubt, even when you think that he's not. Now here's what's interesting, is that God in his foreknowledge and his sovereignty knew that battles were just on the other side, that to get the Israelite community to the promised land, it meant going to war. God could have easily chosen a path around those nations for the Jews to avoid war. He he could have delivered them maybe by taking them a different route, but the Jews didn't have to go to war. There could have been another option, right? He could have delivered them into the promised land in an easier way. And so why, why did God allow them to go to war and and go to battle? You see, because we we know that God actually delivered the Israelite community, not apart from war, but, but actually through the war, through battle, because going around war, it, it just would have fostered more safety. It would have just led to more comfort. And, and God knew that that would have caused them to just play it safe and to find more comfort. is what they were familiar with. Instead, the more the Israelites were put at risk, the more they were forced to step out in faith. The more they were, uh, the, 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 they were called to step out in faith and trust that God would be with them. That he would provide them the victory. And God knew that, hey, if you take the step, if you just trust, if you trust that that I've got you and I'm going to take care of you, you're going to find out even more that the more you do that in life, the better off you'll be. You see, if there's one thing that's going to hold us back from living a better way in 2018, it's that we continue to resort to what's safe and what's comfortable and what's predictable. Why, Why is that? Well, you do get, if the Israelites decided to play it safe, they would have just stayed in the wilderness. They would have just remained in the desert. You see, following after what Jesus says is right and true is difficult. It's challenging. It's going to cause you to, to give up some patterns, decisions. It's not easy, but it is better. There's a book in the Bible called Hebrews that was written to a group of followers of Jesus during the first century who had converted from Judaism. Okay, Now, once they began following Jesus and they joined the church, they were a little bit surprised to see that once they followed Jesus, life didn't get much easier for them. It required fight and, and they couldn't play it safe. They thought they were taking steps towards more comfort, only to realize that it actually put them in more danger. And so this group of believers were considering leaving the faith altogether, going back to Judaism, because that's what they were familiar with. That's what would have brought them more acceptance and less hostility in their community. But, but the writer of Hebrews basically says to these Christians contemplating this, hey, look, I, I get it why you want to give up your faith and go back to Judaism, but realize that, that just because that's safe and comfortable doesn't mean that's what's best. It, it doesn't mean that that's what's better. In fact, you would be turning back to nothing. What a stupid decision that would really be. And so in chapter 3, check out what the writer of Hebrews says. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Okay, now in verse 19, he gives a history lesson, reminds them of this moment when their ancestors weren't allowed to enter the promised land because they played it safe. So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. You see, if they would have prioritized what was comfortable rather than stepping out and faith, although it came with some risk, that they would have never they would have never entered the promised land. And so, do you see what the writer is saying here, using this older generation of Israelites as an example? He's calling them out for for wanting to return to what they were familiar with because it was the safer option, even though that meant giving up their salvation. And so, let me ask you this: all right? What if the risk of making safety your goal this year is actually a greater risk because it can lead to unbelief in your life you see you you can live by faith you can live by fear but you can't live by both and so when we we fight for what is right when we fight for what is true it, it puts us in this position to to actually trust that God will keep his promises even when we have every reason to to doubt and it's causing us to give up comfort and, and safety Back in November, uh, my wife and I went on a a few-day trip without any kids. It was a great time uh, because if, you know, three kids at home, things can get a little bit chaotic and and just... It happened at this point in in our marriage. Um, We just knew that something was off. We weren't really connecting. Now, I got to tell you that that we have an incredible marriage. We always have. I couldn't have married somebody better. But at this particular point back in November, we just weren't connecting very much. And so on Wednesday of this trip, we we were at lunch, and and we were at at this restaurant. And unbeknownst to me, I was about to have one of the most painful conversations that I've ever had probably in, in my marriage I'll spare you some of the details, but, but it basically went like this. I realized that I, I kind of stopped fighting for, for my wife. I kind of stopped fighting for my marriage. Now, it wasn't intentional and, it was a sl- subtle drift along the way, but I kind of got into this pattern and this routine where I would come home in the evenings and I was so tired. We would focus on getting the kids to bed and, and every time Savannah would try to connect with me and talk with me on the couch after the kids were asleep, I'd give her one word answers. I wouldn't really open up. I, I wasn't really there. I wasn't really a present. And so as a result, our marriage started to drift like this and I wouldn't have admitted it maybe in the moment, but I'd stopped fighting. You been there before? Because I stopped fighting, our, our marriage was falling short of what was better. Now, since then, we've made some really good improvements, and I see it every day as my uh, mission when I wake up to fight for my wife, to fight for our marriage. You you can't just drift into this. It doesn't happen by accident. It has to be intentional. Uh, And so when I come home in the evenings, I save energy to connect with her. I open up with her. Uh, I try to be more vulnerable. And I hate it, but I try to share more of my emotions with her, right? You know, and kind of she pulls that out of me. And when I do share my emotions with her, I'll be honest, I have other motives for doing that too, all right? (laughs) But here's my point. The number one thing, the number one thing that, that makes your wife attracted to you men Isn't your back hair, isn't your beer belly, or how impressed you are when you get out of the shower and you look at yourself in the mirror? No. The most impressive, attractive thing to women is when they know that they are being pursued by a man who hasn't given up on them, who hasn't given up on their kids, and is willing to fight to take up their sword every single day and go to war and go to battle. Why? Because that's what better looks like. Passivity is never best. Passivity is actually the tactic that the enemy originally used with men, our very first very First father, Adam in the garden. You see, God has always called men to fight. God has always called men to stand up for what is right and true. And, and so that's why here at Crossroads, we are really passionate about trying to discover more ways to engage men and help them rediscover who Jesus really is. This isn't politically correct. You may disagree with it. You may be offended by it, but I don't care. When men get better, life just tends to get better with it, Right? Everyone gets better when men in our lives get better because so many problems and so many issues in our society and culture today and some of the brokenness in your past happen because somewhere along the way, a man wasn't living up to what he was called to do. And so if we are not careful here at, at Crossroads, church can easily become a zoo. Men walk in and feel like they, they've walked into a, a zoo and get the impression that, you know what? To follow Jesus, you have to play nice. You gotta be kind. You gotta live a restricted life and be effeminate, peacekeeper who walk around petting kittens, living as doormats, and find every reason to be offended by others. And you know what? If that's who you think Jesus calls you to be, I don't know who sold you that version of Jesus, but it's not the Jesus that we read about in the Bible. Why? Because Jesus was strong. Jesus was a man. Jesus fought. Whenever there was a victim, he always stood between him and the oppressor and said, hey, look, if you want to get to her, you got to go through me first. See, here at Crossroads, we don't believe that as men, you have to give up your masculinity just to come to church, all right? We are called to fight. And men almost said something different. We're called to fight and when we get better, things tend to follow, right? And this leads me to the last point that goes like this. Better, it starts with responsibility, not intentions. It starts with responsibility, maybe not good intentions. Right, the reality is you will keep getting what you've always received if you just keep doing what you've, what you've always done. And so this requires that we learn the difference between responsibility and intentions. This is why the Bible often refers to sin as deceitfulness. Okay? You didn't intend to cheat. You didn't intend for, you know, to get caught up in, in that eating disorder. You didn't intend to look at porn. You didn't intend to punch that hole in the wall out of anger and, and rage. you see, the, the plan that, that you have for your life, it's perfectly designed to give you the results that you've been getting. And, and maybe you say, well, what plan? I don't have a plan. Well, there you go. And in a way, when we have those moments where our mistakes, our brokenness, our darkness is revealed, it reveals the path that maybe we've been walking down the entire time. Over and over again, Moses told the Israelites to to choose life and and, and to be responsible for other people, for their community. You see, when the previous generation of Jews were freed from slavery in Egypt, they intended to go to the promised land. I mean, that was their dream. that, that, That was their goal. But they fell short of it. Why? They didn't really take responsibility. They didn't really have a plan to, to keep them focused on what was ahead. Recently read through a book called uh, Extreme Ownership, How Navy Seals Lead and Win, uh, written by two guys who have served in the armed forces, and it's, it's one of the best leadership books I've ever written. Well, the whole point of this book is, is a great leader is one who takes responsibility for his team even when he has every reason to point the finger or, or to blame. That's, that's what a true leader is all about. And so they talk about story after story of how in combat you don't want an officer, you don't want a general who, who is always looking to point the finger into, into blame, who's not willing to take ownership of certain decisions or mistakes that are made even, even if he had nothing to do with it. And you know what? That, that's really the example of Jesus. You see, our sin was our fault, not Jesus' fault. But when Jesus went to the cross, he was basically he was basically making our sin his fault and absorbing all the consequences that we deserve be, because we messed up. That Jesus took responsibility even when he had every reason to point the finger and, and dish out blame. Now, we're almost done here. And sometimes if you've spent much time in church, you'll hear the word disciple thrown around a lot. And what, what does that really mean? And, and I think more than just sometimes not making disciples because the very last thing that Jesus told us to do was to go out and make disciples, I think we first have to start at this place of of understanding and clarifying, well, what really is a disciple? That that may be our biggest problem rather than not making disciples is is understanding, okay, well, what really is a disciple all about? Sometimes you you might think that a disciple is a a super committed, highly passionate follower of Jesus who is completely devoted to him in in every area of your life. And you know what? If that's what a disciple is, let me just break it to you. That means none of us qualify. Why? Because you've probably got some things in your life, the way you think, the way you deal with your emotions or sin, some brokenness that that falls short of being fully devoted to Christ. And and so what what really is a disciple? Well, Mark, it's a book in scripture. It's kind of like a biography on the life of Jesus. This is the moment when Jesus calls one of his very first disciples. And check out what we read happens here. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, this guy is named Peter, Simon Peter, and his brother Andrew casting the net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Okay, so, so Simon Peter right here is standing in his boat. His career is about fishing, but you know what? Obviously he's a horrible fisherman. He's not really catching anything. He's not really paying the bills and... Uh, not catching much fish, not paying, not, not paying for rent. And, and so he's just kind of come at the end of, of his rope and, and realizing that something has to be better out there. <clears throat> and so Jesus comes to him and says, hey, how, how about I teach you how to, how to fish for men? Let me tell you something. In this moment, Peter had no idea what that meant. He had no idea that, that by choosing to follow Jesus, by just simply taking that one step, it would lead to something better it would lead to something greater it would he had no idea in this moment that you know what one day I'm going to stand up in a city of Jerusalem and and i didn't know it but but I have this gift of, of speaking and preaching and, and thousands upon thousands of people are going to come to know the Lord one day he, he didn't know that he, he didn't know that he would literally start churches and be the reason for starting churches all across the globe he didn't know that he would actually write a book in scripture he didn't know he probably even write at this moment in time that that's not what Peter was thinking no, he, he just simply was frustrated with what he had always gotten in life. And he said, I, I'm open to something better. And so I'm willing, to try something, I'm willing to try something different. And so what if we defined a disciple like this? A disciple is anyone who wants something better and is willing to try something different. You see, by, by dropping his nets right there on the boat, we realize that, that the definition of a disciple is someone who is He was tired of the way things have always been. He didn't catch fish. He was tired of failing. He knew something better was out there. And so in this moment, he dropped the nets by basically acknowledging, I'm willing to try something different. Now from this moment on, Peter would continue to blow it. He would doubt, he would cuss out a little girl and deny Jesus right before he was crucified. We also later know that, that, among the early church leaders, he had this reputation of being a hypocrite. And so I guess if you were to define a disciple as a passionate, fully devoted follower of Jesus, Peter would fall short of that. But he was somebody who was willing to strive towards what was better and willing to do something different. And so let me bring this home. What if if you saw yourself as a disciple this year? What if you saw yourself as someone who was willing to strive towards what was better and to do something different? And, And this was your year to embrace that well, let's bring this home. Here's some homework I've got for you this week. I want you to think about an area of your life that you just continue to, it continues to cause you frustration. You know, there's gotta be a better way to to do this part of my life. What comes to mind when I say, hey, what part of your life would you like to be better? Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's the way that you're dealing with your emotions, how you deal with anger. Maybe it's, you know, how how you parent, what it looks like to be a step parent this year. Now for me personally, it's finances. We spent a lot of money in December. And so this past week I told Savannah, hey, we've got to do something different here. Let's create a budget, let's create a spending plan. We want something better, so let's do something different. What, what, what is that area of your life for you? I want you to take out your phone or I want you to take out your bulletin or something to write on. And I just want you to write out that word that describes that part of your life. Again, maybe it's finances, marriage, home life, whatever that is. And at some point today, what I want you to do with that word is I want you to text it to a friend that you trust. Preferably this isn't your spouse, okay? Text it to somebody that you trust and, and just send them that word. More than likely, they're gonna respond back and say, well, what, what in the world is this all about? Why did you send me this? And you're gonna say, hey, uh, the reason why I sent you this is because this is a part of my life that I want to be better and, and by me texting you is my way of saying I, I'm willing to try something different. I need you to hold me accountable to this and, and maybe even say, hey, we're, we're learning about that at church right now and, and when we come back here next week, we're gonna pick up from there as we continue on this journey. We're, we're not called to, to run a marathon all at once. We're just called to take one step. And, and so if you want something better, the step I'm asking you to take today is to take that word that describes that part of your life that you want better Send it to a friend, text it to a friend, and we'll pick up there next week, okay? Let me pray for us. God, you are good, you are holy, you are righteous, and I thank you, Father, that you not only have given us a better eternity, but you've shown us a better way to live here in this life before our funeral. And, and so would you, would you just help reveal to all of us right here, right now, those listening online at West Campus, back in the chapel, that, that part of our life that, that if we don't get under control a year from now, it could spill over into some other important areas of our life and... It could just be catastrophic. And and so what is that for us? And would you continue to show us a, a better way to live? We thank you for your word and your truth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.